Are you ready to hear God's word today? Come on, get your Bibles out, and you're going to find an Old Testament passage here in just a moment in 1 Samuel 17. 1 Samuel 17, as we continue the series that I entitled, I Love My Church. I love my church. I believe Jesus moving through the local church is the hope of the world. Uh, The church is God's built-in infrastructure of his people uh, to reach the community, the city, the region, the state, and, and, and the nation. And so we want to love what Jesus loves, and that's our local church. And the first week we talked about defining what a church actually is. Church is not simply an event that you go to that has some Christian music and then a message or a devotional. But I shared with you how there were some definable marks beyond what we automatically or culturally presume constitutes a church. And if you're listening by Facebook Live or you're listening by YouTube, you can go to that message and you can hear me outline some of the biblical marks of what it means to be a local church. And I concluded that message by using as the analogy, the 12 tribes of Israel making up the whole nation of Israel. And I compared that in analogy to local churches, and obviously we have far more than 12 local churches, but but a local church is a tribe as it gathers together to become the whole body of Christ. And that shadow and that type that I left with you is very, very important. And uh, it's some very important things I believe the Lord had in mind. And so we did that the first week. Last week, uh, Robert Platt Sr. shared about your need to love the local church, to love your tribe, to pray for it, to work in unity as a body in it. And so we've been, we've been just circling this area. And this week, uh, I have a message that I entitled, Something to Live For, something to die for it's the power of a vision something to live for and something to die for i want to read to you a very familiar passage out of first samuel 17 beginning with verse 20 you're going to know this instantly but i want to read it to you again it's 20 verses that's usually a little longer than i read on sunday morning uh, sunday sunday afternoon but how many of you know that scripture in church is okay It's okay to read a little scripture. So follow along with me in this familiar story. And we read, So David rose early in the morning, left the sheep with the keeper, and took the things and went as Jesse, that's his dad, had commanded him. And he came to the camp as the army was going out to the fight and shouting for the battle. In other words, the armies of Israel were fixing to fight and they're making a lot of noise. For Israel and the Philistines had drawn up in battle array army against army. And David left his supplies in the hand of the supply keeper, ran to the army, and came and greeted his brothers. Then as he talked with them, there was the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, coming up from the armies of the Philistines, and he spoke according to, he spoke according to the same words. So David heard them, and all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were dreadfully afraid. So the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he's come up to defy Israel. And it shall be that the man who kills him, the king will enrich with great riches, will give him his daughter and give his father's house exemption from taxes in Israel. In other words, fight Goliath, you get a tax exemption. Then David spoke to the men who stood by him saying, what shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? 
I love this. For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in this manner, saying, So it shall be done for the man who kills him. Now Eliab, his oldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was aroused against David, and he said, Why did you come down here, and with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your pride and the insolence of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. And David said, What have I done now? Is there not a cause? Then he turned from him toward another and said the same thing. And these people answered him as the first ones did. Now when the words which David spoke were heard, they reported them to Saul, and he sent for him. Then David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, You're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you're a youth, and he a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep his father's sheep. And when a lion or a bear came and took the lamb out of the flock, I went after it and struck it and delivered the lamb from its mouth. And when it arose against me, I caught it by its beard and struck and killed it. Your servant has killed both lion and bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, seeing he has defied the armies of the living God. Moreover, David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. So Saul clothed David with his armor, and he put a bronze helmet on his head. He also clothed them with a coat of mail, or meaning some form of, you know, like armor, sheet armor, kind of like a chain. David fastened his sword to his armor and tried to walk, for he had not tested them. And David said to Saul, I cannot walk with these, for I've not tested them. So David took them off, And he took his staff in his hand, and he chose for himself five smooth stones from the brook and put them in the shepherd's bag in a pouch which he had, and his sling was in his hand, and he drew near to the Philistine. And we'll stop there. Now, you know the story, right? And you know how the story ends. And a great victory occurred that day for David in front of the armies of Israel and, of course, against Goliath. Now, I like teaching, those of you that know me, I like teaching precept, and it's easy for me to take this familiar subject like vision that everybody probably knows a little bit about and to begin to unpack it in sort of a a teaching-type presentation to help you better understand maybe the intricacies of what vision is all about. There was a a man you may have heard of by the name of George Barna, who about 20 years ago wrote a book entitled The Power of Vision. And at the time, it was like one of these cutting-edge books that, that no one really had read much about vision. You never got it in school. You never heard about it. And so it sort of was this, this great best-selling book, which, which became a hot topic where, you know, every pastor and church and church leadership it became the standard by which they began to do church life, and that was you need a vision. And so we hear for the last 20 years this word a lot, you need a vision. Today I want to share with you a a familiar story, David and Goliath, that you've heard, and out of this story that you know and that you've heard, I want to talk about vision from a fresh angle. 
You know, the Bible's full of inspiring stories and exploits. If you read the 11th chapter of the book of Hebrews and you read the faith chapter, you'll begin to see that there are all of these stories that are lined up by the writer that are powerful, they're familiar, they're inspiring. And the key to each of these stories is that long before their faith was ever exercised, long before they actually took a step into what God was asking of them, that vision had to be embraced. Now, a number of weeks ago, my wife had this great revelation, and she shared it with us. She shared with us that, that the definition, or I should say the, the opposite of faith is not doubt, but the opposite of faith is sight. Remember, we walk not by sight, but by faith. And so they're opposites. People think doubt is the opposite of faith. When in fact, sight, when you begin to see your natural circumstances, when you see what's in front of you, when you see what's being thrown at you, when you begin to walk by what you see, then faith gets snuffed out. And so faith and natural sight can at times be uh, adversarial to one another. And that is true. It is absolutely, positively bottom line true. But I want to I just share something with you so you get a hold of this because Faith, while it is not natural sight, while it's not what you see, faith is not blind. Faith is not just this walk into the darkness. But faith links to your spiritual sight. In other words, what your inner man sees, or in other words, what God has said, or what God has revealed, or the vision God has given for you, when you begin to see vision or what god has put before you then you can begin to step towards it believing him for whatever is necessary in order you for you to accomplish that which he has called you to do the story is a great example if david looked at his natural circumstances by sight giant armies are in fear saul the king doesn't want to do this nobody's stepping up to the plate if that's all he saw, it would have snuffed out his faith. It is true. If he walked by natural sight, there is no way he could have beat Goliath. But here's the deal. When he looked at Goliath, he wasn't seeing a giant that was too big to win over. He saw a target that was too big to miss. Are you following me? It's not that you're blind. It's what you're seeing. And so if you're seeing simply your circumstances that are falling apart and they're out of control and you don't know what to do and everybody's on you and saying something and it's, everything's just discouraging and depressing and if that's what you see, then it'll take you out. However, if you see an opportunity in the midst of the chaos, that just may be God's vision. Are you following me? Because you're going to have to get this because every one of us in this room are going to have a moment in your personal life. You're going to have a moment in your marriage. You're going to have a moment in your, in your job. You're going to have a moment in the ministry. You're going to have a moment in church life. You're going to have a moment that if your eyes keep looking at simply what's natural, it'll take you out. It does all the time. But there comes a moment that there's a vision, something internally. You see something then maybe not everybody else sees. But it's real to you. 
And when you see that, you can link your faith to that. And in linking your faith to that, you can be the smallest guy in the army and you can take out the biggest giant of the enemy. Vision. Vision. I, don't, I didn't put it on the screen, but here's how do you define a vision? Vision is a picture of a preferable future. In fact, I might even say it's a God future. And the only reason I put preferable in there is because sometimes you have the choice as to whether or not you're going to accept it. But it's a picture of a preferable future, listen, that produces passion. A lot of us, a lot of us have wishful thinking, but that's all it ever is. I just wish life was different. I wish this shook out differently. It's it's it'd be great if that wishful thinking is not vision vision is when you see something and there's a passion you can't see it with your natural eyes to be candid nobody saw that day on the plains of megiddo the same thing that david saw nobody saw it they were they were paralyzed in fear only david saw what could be and so no one else may see this but you see this in fact your current situation may look exactly the opposite of what that preferable future looks like. But you see with your eyes of vision what the natural eyes can't comprehend. But because you see it internally, it produces that passion. Now I'm learning that if you've lost your passion about life, it may well be you need to check your vision. The Bible is full of accounts of vision, faith, amazing and miraculous successes. The story I just read to you of David and Goliath is one of them. This story, like the others, gives us this template of what vision looks like and how it is implemented in the life of God's people. And it, of course, can then be translated into the life of God's church. The Bible's full of templates. Here we find our context, and that's the nation of Israel is paralyzed by the Philistines. The Philistines, interestingly, are analogous to a hostile culture. And the Philistines are trying to take captive and extinguish the mandate of the body of Christ. I oftentimes refer to, like, the media, the mainstream media. Oftentimes you'll hear me refer to the media as Philistines. Why are they Philistines? It's because they're doing everything they can. The media does everything it can to mock us, to be adversarial to us. You know, whether or not you like the president, they had pastors in there the other day. They were praying for him. I think it's good if pastors pray for the president. He probably needs a lot of prayer. And the first thing the media does is they try to spin it and mock it and be adversarial to it. And listen, I don't care what you think of the president. The fact is the media is a bunch of Philistines taunting like goliath who are you who are you in fact i could give you illustration over illustration of the culture being philistine like but here are the real philistines and these these israeli warriors have gathered and all of these warriors are from the 12 tribes of israel and so the whole nation of warriors in israel had gathered together for battle but they're hearing the taunts and the intimidation from Goliath, and it's paralyzed them, feared them from any action. In fact, the most visible leader, Saul, who was the king and the heads of all the tribes, is the leader cowering in fear. 
Now, we can rightly assume that in all of this this action that's going on, what they're trying to figure out, I can tell you by how battles were waged in that time period, they were trying to figure out how they were going to negotiate with these Philistines. What can we do to negotiate with them so they'll go back and we can go back and nobody, nobody has to fight and everybody's negotiating? But I want to say something to you. Sometimes Philistines refuse to negotiate. And there's sometimes you ought not negotiate. Now, doesn't that sound relevant? The church of Jesus Christ, the body of Christ, from all sorts of tribes, has warriors and leaders that are concerned about the Philistine culture. But we act at times in the body of Christ like we're paralyzed and we want to negotiate with the Philistines. And there are times you just can't negotiate with them. You just stand on what God has said. Sometimes we're better off just just saying what God has said than there is trying to negotiate it out with them because Philistines just don't understand. So how and what is to be done? Well, this is where vision begins to unfold and David demonstrates the template. Now hear me when I say this. I'm going to get to applying it to us, but I want you right now to begin to apply it to you. Say to yourself, what has God asked me to do? What vision do I have? If God... If God hasn't given you a vision for your life or your future, for some relationships, if there's no vision there, then that's a great place to start is saying, I need a vision. I need to see with my inner man eyes that which God is speaking to me about my future because there's a preferable future for you out there somewhere that God has for you. It's not, it may well not be what you're currently looking at. This is what I believe. I'm not trying to, I mean, all of us go through journeys and we have seasons and hear me, this isn't on my notes, but I just want to go through this. There's going to be challenges and there's going to be setbacks and there's going to be things that are going to throw you for a loop and there are going to be curveballs and there are going to be moments you're at a place and you're going, how in the world did I get here? And this isn't what I thought. And I, we've all, if you haven't been there, you will be there. But hear me when I say this. There is something that has to happen that turns, that enables you to look beyond that to see what God yet may have for you in your life. So I believe there's something greater yet for all of us in this room. I, amen. I've said amen because I wasn't sure you would. You've got to believe that. There's something greater for all of us individually, collectively, in this room, it, there must be if he's the same God who says, I can do exceedingly abundantly above all that you could ask or think. According how? To the power that works in you. There's something in me that's at work that can see what maybe no one else will ever see. How does that work? What's to be done? Well, let me share some things here. This is really important stuff. Number one is this. The Lord always unveils first a vision. I call it the birth of a vision. Honestly, most vision starts with a problem. God has something he wants done either in your life or through your life. He wants to do something where you're at, where he's positioned you, where he would want you to be. And, and that's where it starts. You're usually starting. Vision almost always starts with a problem. You're somewhere and you're saying, I'm looking at where I'm at and there's a problem here. Vision starts at the place of a problem because where you're standing may not be the same place as where he ultimately wants you. Israel never fulfilled the mandate when they entered the promised land 
You know, what did they do? As they started going through the promised land, they got tired of battle and they started cutting treaties with all the ites of the land. The Midianites, the Amalekites, all the ites. So they cut treaties because they were wearing out. And so they never fulfilled the mandate. So now, a millennium later, they're facing problems that they should have faced a thousand years earlier and took care of it. But they decided they wanted to negotiate instead of obey God. And so now they're paralyzed by the Philistines. And it didn't go away. And it's still a problem that needs to be addressed. So how is this problem to be addressed? It starts first with the birth of a vision. And it's this. Who's in charge? Goliath or God? That's where it starts. Who gets to call the shot? God or Goliath? It's a problem here. Nobody's wanting to face it but David, but he sees it. And in seeing it, he begins to move toward God's vision. I want to give you just a couple examples here. You know, in 1774, we just got through celebrating, you know, our American independence. But there's a guy by the name of John Adams who got a vision of a United States. There were 13 original colonies which had become states, and he got a vision to unite these 13 colonies so that they would form a nation. Why? It's because they had a problem. And the problem was they were being taxed into poverty by a king who didn't give a flip by it, you know, towards them. It's a problem, and he had a vision. And out of that vision is why you and I are here today. In 1779, the United Kingdom was dealing with slavery. Can we agree slavery was a problem? Wilberforce has a vision of a United Kingdom where there were no slaves. He labored for 50 years until it finally passed and slavery was abolished in the United Kingdom. We've got a problem. Here's a vision 50 years to get there. 1903, society and and people were wanting to travel and they needed faster travel for a more mobile society. How do we get, how do business people get from New York to San Francisco quickly? How do you begin to move through? It takes a stagecoach weeks to take people that far. What are we going to do? How do we do this more quickly? And, And even by rail, it takes over a week by the railroad of that particular era. But there were two brothers the Wright brothers, who said, I believe man can fly. And you could hear them now saying, if man was meant to fly, God would have given him. Why? They were walking by sight. Yeah, birds fly, people don't. And yet something at Kitty Hawk in North Carolina changed all of that forever. Do you realize how fast? In 1903 was the first manned flight. By the First World War, we're flying airplanes in battle. Is that not incredible? Just, that's just less than a decade later. Incredible. How about this? How do we win more people to the Lord? How do we gather people to speak to them and win them and present the gospel to them? There's this guy by the name of Billy Graham that just got this vision in about 1940 and said, you know what, all these stadiums, nobody's using them all through the week. Why don't we just gather people in stadiums somehow and maybe they'll come and we'll preach the gospel to them. And he got a vision for that. And who would have thought Graham could have done that? But there was a publisher by the name of Hearst who heard of this improbable thing this young guy named Billy Graham was trying to do. And he, I think out of mockery, 
told all of his papers across America these words, Pump Graham, and I think he was trying to mock him, but what God did was use that in order to promote him until he is now the name synonymous with the one who has probably preached to more people than any man known to history so far. Live, Billy Graham. There was a problem. How do we solve it? Honestly, vision is really what David said in these passages. He said, is there not a cause? Is there not a cause here? The mandate, the charge given to you by God. I'm not even getting to us yet. I'm just talking to you. Is there not a cause? Do you not have some mandate? Is your life just simply tripping through, hoping things change? Maybe surrounding will uh, somehow just magically change? Or do you get God's vision and say, that's what I'm moving towards? Here's the part as I begin to think about this again. Vision is really the unbalanced part of your life. It really is unbalanced. Because when you see something and no one else sees it, you look like you're the nut. Isn't that true? David looked like the nut. I mean, there have been times in my life I had things beating in me and I start doing it and it's like I'm the only one that can see it. I'm the only one that cares about it and I look like I'm the idiot. I'm the nut. Because it's unbalanced. It grips you. It consumes you. You look tangible. You look peripheral because of the cause. And it's this mandate. And some days you want to get rid of it. But God keeps giving you this mandate. And it's just an unbalanced part of your life. Because it's God's mandate to you. No one else gets it. No one else sees it. But, but you just see this thing. Now, a true vision is something you can't accomplish on your own. Now, I, you say, well, David did. Well, it, it, it is true that David stepped up and he did that. I would make the case that David was simply implementing a piece of what God was wanting to do in the whole nation at that particular moment. And David alone could demonstrate the courage that was needed and would be needed because later on, David didn't go into every battle after that by himself. He had to have an army that came with him. But this was the moment that it consolidated the vision that was inside of him. And vision is, is a time so extreme that it takes God himself providing miracles to see it come to pass. You're not going to be able to afford it. Hear me right now. Vision is never affordable. It's never affordable. You're never going to be able to map it out. You're never going to be able to totally strategize it. It's really what is causing the American church. We talk a lot about vision, but we always link our vision to the budget. We always link our vision to what do we have that we can do this on our own. We always link vision to the natural. I'm here to break that myth and say, if you've got a God vision, we can't do this. Really? There ain't enough to do this. David didn't have what it took to take out Goliath. Let's, Nehemiah couldn't do the wall by himself. I could go down the list of the visionaries and faith walkers and they couldn't do it themselves. Whatever it was that God had asked them to do, it was beyond their capability of doing it and they had to endure all the criticism around them. Be it even walking on water, you can hear the guys in the boat looking at Peter as he's walking on water saying, how peripheral is he? How tangential is he? How unbalanced is he? Yeah, and he's the only one out of the boat walking on water experiencing the miracle. God asked him to do something he could not do himself. 
God will ask you to do things you can't do. It's beyond you. You're not smart enough, sharp enough. You don't have enough friends. Your network isn't big enough. There's not enough money in the bank. You can't do it on your own. You can't pull it up by your own bootstraps, suck it up one more time. It's falling on your face before God and saying, Oh God, if you don't show up, I'm hung. That's why many people don't link to vision. It's because it's the most dangerous place in the world to walk. But having said that, it's also the most miraculous place to walk. It's a God thing or it's no thing. So there's this birth of a vision. The Lord unveils a vision. Number two is this. The call to consecrate to the vision. It's what I call the death of a vision. Now that seems funny, doesn't it? The vision was birthed. But now you're talking about the death of a vision? Listen to me. Vision isn't simply about seeing a need. A lot of us are great at that. We, we see a need and we've even heard it. I've heard this in church life. You find a need and meet it. And there's nothing wrong with that. Meeting needs isn't bad. But vision isn't just about, about meeting a need. Because there'll always be more need than there is resource. There'll always be more need than there is of you. It's about receiving this epiphany, this revelation that produces a passion. You see a problem. Something needs to be done about this. Things cannot remain as they are. Somebody needs to step up. It's what David was looking at up there on the plane. He was saying, what's going on? Somebody needs to take this big dude on. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine? Listen, he's not even in covenant with God. He's uncircumcised. Guys, not to be indelicate, go back into the bathroom. Check yourself out. You're in covenant with God. This guy is not even in covenant with God and you're allowing him to taunt you. Who is he? And this is the point. David not only saw a problem, but he had the epiphany that something needed to be done. Listen to me. And he said to himself, he had to have. I'm willing to lay my life down for this. A vision ultimately is something to die for. There was something he was willing to lay his life on the line. There was something that transcended the taunts and the criticism and the advice and the counsel and the condescension and the scorn and even his family upbringing, his brothers, his friends, everybody's looking at him going, you have lost your mind. David said, I'm willing to lay my life down. I have found something that I'm willing to die for. The reason the story of David and Goliath is inspiring is because you and I know the end of it. Isn't it? I like to read this story because I know how this one's ending. <laughs> yeah, boy, read that David and Goliath thing, boy. Giant gets kicked. We love the story. But the truth is, as David's walking it out, I don't know that he knew the exact end of the story. He had to do what the armies of Israel and Saul were unwilling to do. Have you ever thought about that? Everybody in the nation of Israel is saying one thing, and here you are saying something else. And you've got to do what you're doing against all 
of what's going on. Listen, that's, that's not easy, man. I'm here to tell you, you can listen because media, social media and media can tell us what everybody's saying. And let me tell you, just because everybody's saying it doesn't necessarily mean everybody's right. It's the key, really, to the whole Bible. And that is that there are moments, even in vision, you've got to do what it seems like no one else is willing to do. I put down on my notes here, this is a Twitterable point. Hint. We enjoy the Bible stories because we know how they turn out. We complain about our story because we have to walk it out. Yeah, that's good, wasn't it? Every now and then, something good will come out of this mouth. We enjoy the Bible stories because we know how they turn out. We complain about our story because we have to walk it out. Many times, God will put you, or he'll even put his church through the process of unveiling a vision. And when it starts, we're excited, we're joyful, we're cheering. We arise and we say yes and amen. And when it's challenged and it's on the brink of death, and at times... Hear me now, he even allows it to die. You say, really, God would allow it to die? Absolutely, he did it with his son. His vision was to redeem a world. I don't know how God might have thought about it. I'm not God, who knows? But this much I do know, that the one that he had planned to redeem the world died. It died. Why did it die? So God could raise him up. And I think at times... God allows things either to die or he allows it to look like it's in ICU or in resuscitation. Why? It's to find out how consecrated you really are to his will. How convinced really are you to what you've seen? How committed are you to that which God has said in light of what you see around you? Yeah, it's easy. I guarantee you it's easy. It's easy to be the great analyzer, the analyzer who is paralyzed. It's a lot harder to see with that inner eye what God has shown you. And you find out what you're really consecrated to. Hear me now. I'm talking to some of you right now. It's, it's that way in your marriage. When your marriage is good, it's easy. When it's challenged, this is the moment. Do you believe exactly what you see? Or is there something inside of you that knew that when the two of you came together, that God had a plan and you see that. And it doesn't matter what happens around. And it can even be super challenged. And if you've been married any length of time, you know what it's like to have a marriage that's challenged. But there's something in you that says God had a plan here. And I believe that more than I believe this. See, this is when it gets down to it. When you lose your job. When you're going nowhere. You find out what you're really consecrated to at that moment. We all, we all face this. Nobody gets out of it. Nobody even does it perfectly, but the fact of the matter is you've got to understand it. There's the birth of a vision, and then it's almost like there's this death of the vision. I'm telling you, it's even God, because God's saying, if you'll just consecrate yourself to this, when it comes to pass, it won't be you, it will be me. You say that's what you want, but you really don't want it that way, do you? When we want to do it ourselves, me do myself. And finally, number three is the resurrection of the vision. It manifests because it's God that ultimately fulfills the vision. 
not our organizational skills, not our business acumen, not our charisma, not our personality, not our celebrity. It is God who wants the glory. That is why his vision is bigger and larger than any one person or even one moment. In fact, Proverbs 29.18 says that vision is progressive and ongoing. About the time you think you've completed the picture, he enlarges the picture. He calls us to attempt the impossible so we will know it is him. It was impossible for David to win over Goliath. People laughed and mocked him. Saul, Saul even said, well, hey, I'll give you some armor suggestions. Here, take mine. But David couldn't use that. He said, this may work for you, but this isn't going to work for me. God had other plans, and he resurrected his plan for all of Israel in that one moment. It wasn't that just David won a great victory, which propelled him into his personal destiny, but David won a victory that propelled the whole nation into a kingdom that God had envisioned. Vision never manifests like you think it will. Never. Just never. American Christianity has been so conditioned by business models and business thinking that people get skittish when you do things out of the box. I needed to get, I needed to get my balance here again. I needed to get my footing here again. There are people right now, they are so locked into business and P&L sheets and they are locked into organizational charts and flow charts and they don't get it that God isn't in your chart. God doesn't ask us to do things that we can afford all the time. Sometimes he says, walk, go to the land that I've called you to. How am I going to get there? Can't even afford to go there. I will get it to you when you need it. God resurrects things that the crowd and the carnal call dead. Legacy has had its challenges. And I've had people call us dead numerous times through the years. People have word cursed us. People have left us, said that we would never make it. Well, how do they know? What do they know? What are you looking at that I haven't heard or seen? God doesn't resurrect the self-sufficient. God doesn't resurrect the self-made. God doesn't resurrect those who have put it all together for themselves. God resurrects those who've died. He resurrects those who've died to their will and died to their agendas and died to their plans. And this is the good news. <laughs> We're positioned for resurrection. <laughs> the vision, the vision that he had for us is about to manifest. And this is the good news. That as God does these things, the vision that he has for you is about to manifest. If you can keep your eyes in the right direction. Now, how is that all released? I'm sorry, even though I'm preaching here. I'm preaching today, right? I decided I'm getting my preaching back. I'm just getting my preaching back. I don't care anymore. How is, how is it released? How is vision released? I'm going to give you just some things here that will help you out. This is your personal life. I want you to be personally enlarged. I want you to personally get into God's will. I want you to personally know a better day. I want that for you. Some of you don't want that maybe for yourself. I want it for you. But you got to get God's vision again. you got to connect with that which has vision. you got to understand what God's doing in your life at these moments. 
going to give you a couple things here as to how this is released. Number one is this, articulation. It's actually starting today. Articulation is the first word. That God uses unlikely candidates, he uses unlikely people, unlikely means, but God uses usually somebody to begin to speak out something that will ignite the picture. Moses spoke about deliverance of the people from Egypt. Joshua spoke about people going into the land. Nehemiah spoke about rebuilding a wall. Abraham spoke about stars becoming a nation. Paul spoke about going to Macedonia. Somebody needs to speak the vision. Somebody maybe in your house needs to start speaking the vision. It has to be articulated. Everyone look at you and say, yeah, is that what you see? Of course not. Nobody sees it now, but I see it in my inner man. And at times, the pastor's the one that speaks it for the, the body, the local body. Someone needs to start speaking it, articulating it. The vision, I don't see it. Well, of course not. What are you looking at? But do you see it here? Secondly, after articulation comes anointing. There's a divine touch that begins to manifest that enables you to begin to press through an anointing. Really, this is the start of the resource that comes for the vision, anointing. The anointing is divine favor, divine touch. It's, it's that thing, it's the, the intangible thing that comes that gives you the ability to begin to move that direction. Anointing. The third one I call attachment. Attachment. The reason, the reason you articulate this. Now listen, in a household, let me give you just, I'm trying to leap on a couple different things here. The reason vision needs to be declared even in a household is because it helps everybody in the household attach. There's attachment. Vision has a magnetic quality to it. Remember that word, magnet. Because when you articulate vision, hear me now, even if you articulate vision about uh, you know, your life, your relationship, your family, your marriage, your job, even your church, if you begin to articulate vision, you will find out there's a magnetic quality about it that begins to attract and, and attach now listen to me, that's why, and you'll see this, and, 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 and great churches, again, there are lots of great churches, but you'll see churches who will do that. They'll wear, they'll wear a t-shirt, they'll wear something. They have an ability to articulate and begin to speak, and God begins to favor the vision, and it becomes attractive. It's magnetic. There's an attachment that takes place. That's how God does it. When Nehemiah announced we're rebuilding the wall, Despite the fact there were enemies gathered around, it had been in rubble for how many years? When he begins to announce this thing, all of a sudden, things just begin to move. People begin to respond. There's an attachment that begins to take place. There's a magnetic piece to vision. But I said to remember that word because along with magnetism or a magnet, what does a magnet do? A magnet, a magnet can attract and a magnet can also do what? Repel, alienate, right? Because, because sometimes if it's the right metal or the opposite polar end of a magnet, what happens is you can, you can feel the resistance in the magnet. And it's really true to some degree about vision. This really answers the question as to why so many churches everywhere. Now, some of that is just sheer division, and, and some of it's just sheer fragmentation, sectarianism, and it ought not be. But, but people have asked, shouldn't there just be one church? 
And this is what I've often said. I said, well, there is one church. It's called the body of Christ. They're the universal church. That is true. I believe there is a universal church. But having said that, there is local expression. In other words, you cannot be a part of a universal church unless it's being walked out in a local church. You can't just sit around and say, I'm a believer and never attach yourself to a local church. Because when you attach yourself to the tribe, you're attaching yourself to that tribe's vision. You're becoming profitable in the vision that you have become attached to. Now hear me when I say this, and I believe this to be true. If God orchestrates our steps and he designs our steps, and people get saved, obviously, I'm going to talk about this again in just a moment, but there are going to be people that are naturally, that are going to attach and be attracted because God has put something inside of them that just attaches to that thing and says, yep, I'm going to be attached to that. I'm to labor here. A lot of good things going on. God vision that's happening all over the place, all over the world, but I'm attaching here because the magnet is drawing me here. But at the same way, and this is the part you have to get used to, not everybody's going to feel attached to that. And this is hard because I want everybody attached to it because I'm passionate about it. And it's hard to be passionate about something and someone says, eh, I'm not that passionate about it. That's hard. It's just hard. But I get it. You need to get that too. Not everybody's going to be as passionate maybe as you are about something. So there can be alienation. And then the fifth one I put down here is activation. There is a mobilization or a releasing to a group of people to begin to mobilize and achieve the vision and achieve the impossible because it can't rest on one person alone. You couldn't build the wall. Nehemiah couldn't build the wall by himself. Moses, supernaturally, of course, changed Pharaoh's heart. But in order to cart everything out of Egypt that had to go ultimately to the promised land how many of you know it took five million people that's activation that's how it begins to work now this leads us to the part and i'm coming in now for my landing i preached a lot of things that weren't even in my notes so i went a little longer but the natural question is what is our local church vision that's the that's the natural question that flows out of all of this i'm going to i'm going to read this thing because I, I, I was before the Lord, and it really was. And I said, Lord, help me, help me articulate this. Let me just share a couple things I think that will be helpful before I, before I read it. I, wanna, I want to first differentiate between the Great Commission and vision. The Great Commission and vision. I'm going to give you an example. Um, uh, for example, let's say there's a man. He's a husband. He's a father. And, and, and men oftentimes do have, have a vision for their career or a vision for their life. Hear me when I say this. Your family is certainly involved in that vision. And so, so he has to balance two concepts. He has to balance the legitimate expectation of being a husband or a father because as a husband or a father, he just can't, he just can't dive whole hog into a vision without realizing I've got some expectation and responsibility here. For example, I need a job in order to provide for them. Uh, I need to make sure the bills are paid. I need to make sure there's, there's covering, uh, household, heat. Listen, 
If, if you need a job, I understand why you would get a vision for a job, but here, here's the fact of the matter. If you're in all things being equal and normal, you really don't need a special vision for a job. God just says, if you don't work, you don't eat. So everyone needs to do something to provide for their household. That's just expected of every household, right? Are you, so, so keep that in mind. But yet at the same time, there are these expectations that are just responsibilities at the same time, there's this call or this cause that God may have placed on your life. And so there's this natural, I think, balancing act that takes place that you have to work through. And, and, and there are some, I'm just using men as an example, it can happen to women too. But, but sometimes men get so focused on the vision for what they want, let's say by way of career or a job or something like this, that they forget that they have other responsibilities that are, are really very, very important. And that somehow they got to work through their responsibilities while at the same time, you know, pursuing a mandate and pursuing a call on their life. It works the same way with regards, I think, to churches. There is, number one, God's established will for all churches. To be a church means, hear me, that you're going to do evangelism. Now, it doesn't mean every evangelistic thing has to be programmatic. It means all of us, though, as believers, are expected to share our faith with other people. Can I get an amen? Listen, you got to get that in your system. You do not get to opt out. You don't, you don't get to say, I'm not called to share my faith. That is just not there. Everybody's called to share their faith. You've got to find those moments. I mean, I'm saying you have to be obnoxious. And you just, you're just, you know, you're the one, uh-oh, so-and-so's coming, duck. You know, they're going to go to Jesus, right? I mean, you know, you don't have to be obnoxious, but you've got to be prepared to share your faith. Are you sharing your faith? It's not all programmatic. It's not a church just creating umpteen hundred evangelistic outreaches. You are the outreach. We all are. We all should be working on it. We all should be discipling. Now, I'm not saying a church doesn't create outreach. Don't misunderstand me. Or a church doesn't have missions. In a moment, we're going to be baptizing. We baptize. But the Great Commission is for every church. You don't need a specific call for any of these things. It's what the body of Christ does. So we will always be reaching people to the best of our abilities. We'll always be discipling people to the best of our abilities. We're always going to involve ourselves somehow in missions Doing the things that a normal, responsible house would do. That's God's established will for every church. So yes, in this regard, we're like every other church. Every church ought to do that. But there is a specific will, number two, for some churches. Just like there's a specific will in your personal life. And this is unique. Now, I've poured over prophecies. I've read them again. I have them, I have them stored on my phone. And I'm just sharing with you things that I'm reading that I believe were the word of the Lord. And for whatever reason, maybe it went over my head. Maybe it didn't cause the epiphany. I, you know, but I'm just reading things like we're not here to build a church, but redeem a city. I remember that phrase. I, I started rereading some of the vision, some of the dreams, the dreams of hospitalization, hospitals and things like this. I started evaluating my my personal passions my personal call i mean it's no surprise i like to engage culture and biblical worldview and these things are within the scope of who i am and in my dna i remember the poignant moment when i was flying back from somewhere and we flew over john's island and i could actually see the the land that we have 
out there still. And I remember God spoke to me out of one of Mark Batterson's things when he said, I did not come to build a steeple, but rather I came to plant a cross. And so remember, we went out there and we planted a cross, just trying to obey God. Now, I don't know how all that, and, 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 and again, I, it, vision is progressive. So if I don't get it all, I'm not going to be too uptight about it because I'm just walking it out. But I decided on this vision, this existence statement, and I want to read it to you, and I just want to say a couple of quick things, and then we're going to conclude, and then we're going to baptize and rejoice. But this is what I wrote down. And again, vision statements, I think, change because they are progressive. They, they can change through the years. The picture can be more full, or it can be enlarged. But I put this down. I said, to reclaim, restore, and reform the Charleston region and beyond to reflect the glory of God and His purposes. Now you say, well, well, pastor, that's, that's not real specific. Well, wait just a moment. Let me just say a couple of things. For instance, the glory means to just make God's name great. We want to reflect His great name. I thought about that we ought to create a hashtag for legacy that says make His name great or making His name great. That's just a hashtag we all use, making His name great. How many of you on social media will just start doing it? Making his name great, hashtag. The glory of God means the awesomeness, the greatness. How do we make, see the next question is mission. How do you make, how do you make his name great? How do you do this? In fact, how could we make Charleston, how could Little Legacy make Charleston reflect the glory of God? That is, that is beyond us. That's right, it'd take God to do it, wouldn't it? All right, so now we're in the God zone. But what happens is you begin to set a rudder. How does it happen? This morning as I was typing and I was just meditating on this, I remembered years ago the elder Bush, George H.W., remember our first President Bush? He used a phrase one time that just, for whatever reason, it dropped back in me, and I believe it was the Holy Spirit. Now, when he used the phrase, he was talking about government. It has nothing to do with government. What I'm about ready to say has nothing to do with government. But he used this phrase in order to signify what private enterprise could do outside of government. And he used this phrase. He said, there are a thousand points of light. Anybody remember that phrase? A thousand points of light. And for whatever reason, that just came up in me again. And those thousand points of light in his mind were places that the government could not provide a solution to people's problems, that somebody was providing the solution to a problem that government was never going to get his hands into. Now, would it not be remarkable for a church to have a thousand points of light? Now, I don't know whether or not we can get a thousand points of light, but I bet if we got that vision, we could, as a people together, have a hundred points of light. A hundred points of light. A hundred ministry areas which begin to achieve the vision of reclaiming and restoring and reforming the region. A vision of doing something impossible. Why, why not envision Charles actually being the holy city? Maybe God painted its nickname over it that somebody might actually see that. Ministry areas, and some we've done, but I'm just sharing points of light. Marriage ministry, helping married people stay married, defending the foundation of marriage, or parenting. 
or widows or orphans or government engagement. Somehow or another, we've got to make our witness known again at the death mills. How about feeding the legitimately poor, housing the indigent, freeing a sex slave? They tell me there's even sex slaves in Charleston. How about taking the gospel to foreign fields and missions and welcoming and helping the immigrant who wants to be our neighbor and let's help them do it the right way? Supporting first responders. Listen, these points of light are literally endless, but in order to activate it, you have to attach to a vision. You have to hear God's voice as to what your part in that vision is. Then you have to embrace the reality that God has unveiled it for you and it becomes something to live for and something to die for. Because right now, I think most of us live, it's optional. My faith is optional. My, my Christianity is optional. In fact, the culture is like that. Barna said it himself. Most people think if they come to church once or twice a week, they check the box and they're okay. We are living in optional times. And I'm telling you, vision is no longer optional. I give my life, I'm willing to die. And if no one else sees it, then I'm sorry, I want you to. And and I can't fix it. I want to. But is there not a cause? Is there not a cause? Vision becomes the glue, I think, to greatness. And I think it will pave the way for all of our personal destinies. Vision, the power of vision, something to live for. And something to die for. Would you stand? I'm going to pray and then we're going to baptize.